0: Good morning everyone, welcome to Calvary Chapel, Sydney, and a couple of uh, announcements before we begin. Yes, so we're, we're no longer, oh, we're, we're restricted from singing at the moment. I think the sound team kind of helps us out by, if we are singing, the words will be up. If we're not singing, there will appear no words on the screen, so that should eliminate any confusion with the changing restrictions from day to day or week to week. We are still planning on a nine o'clock Christmas Day service if the Lord should lead you to attend to that. Uh, so there won't be any children's ministry during that time. Also, Trudy's asked that I let you know that there is a draft roster that's up. So check it out in the foyer. Make sure it's correct. Also, if you want to fill in those gaps, you can put your name down or let her know. So, hopefully that is all the announcements, because I tend to forget them. We'll be in Luke 22, if you'll turn there, and let's pray. Father, You are so good to us. All glory and praise be unto You. Thank You for Your salvation and your, your, the great gift of, of Jesus for us. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who fills us and your word that guides us and uh, enlightens our path. Lord, where will we go except to you? You are our savior. You are our helper, our comforter and friend. All wisdom and might and honor and glory are yours. And may we be captivated by you alone. Cause us, Lord, to worship you and to look upon you With awe and your majesty, may it overwhelm us today. Thank you for the humility of Christ, and may that mark our lives. And as we read your word, Lord, please speak to our hearts. Help us to be receptive and obedient to your guidance. In Jesus' name, amen. So Luke 22, starting in verse 24, that's where we're going to begin. Um, When I consider the powerful, the wealthy, the influential people of the world... Humility does not always go hand in hand with that position. And the only ones who are great in God's kingdom are marked by humility before God and man. I mean, we can say that we're humble before God and not be humble before man, but that's like saying, I love God, but don't you hate your brother. So it's like th- this is an inconsistency. If we're hu- truly humble before God, then we must be humble before men. And it's not a desire to be great that motivates us toward humility, because that would be false humility, motivated by pride and selfishness and and hoping to, with ambition, hoping to attain something for yourself. It's true that those who humble themselves, God will lift up. We see that revealed in the life of Jesus, and humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but it's holding God in the greatest esteem. And Jesus demonstrated that kind of humility by submission to God, obedience to him, that lowliness of mind. And there was no one more wise than Jesus, but he had a lowly mind. He, he didn't come to earth to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I looked up what Webster had to say about humility. He said, it's self-abasement, penitence for sin, and submission to the divine will. And Jesus didn't sin so there was no need for repentance, but he laid down his life for sinners. It's something that he didn't have to do. He was so above sin, so apart from sin, yet he became sin for us. He humbled himself to that degree in obeying the Father's will. So where we begin, Jesus is in Jerusalem. His disciples, they had just observed the Passover Uh, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Passover, it was a time of remembrance to look back to the things God did in delivering his people from Egypt, from slavery. And Jesus used the elements of the Passover meal to point forward towards what he would accomplish. He broke the bread and said, this is my body broken for you. And then he gave them the cup and said, this is the blood of the new covenant. And they were to observe that in remembrance of him. And so after Jesus accomplished those things, they were to continue to remember what he did. And it's pretty cool that he, he told them to remember even before it happened, that he had told them it was going to happen and he willingly went ahead with it according to the Father's will. And he revealed the one who sat at the table. He said, there, someone at this table will betray me. And I, I'm so grateful to God that the the fact there was a betrayer at the table didn't hinder him from following through. So often we would do something if everyone's kind of on good behavior, right? We're like, all right, you deserve this. You've earned this. Not the case. We can't earn salvation. We can't earn forgiveness. And there was a betrayer at the table and Jesus died for Judas. He died for people like Judas. He died for us who are sinners, liars, hypocrites, by God's grace. In our flesh there dwells no good thing, and yet God sought to redeem us to join us to himself. So praise him for that. Luke 22 verse 24. Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, He who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. What a contrast we see between Jesus and his disciples here. He's speaking of his body being broken for them, his blood being shed for them, and they're arguing and squabbling about which of them should be considered the greatest. Obviously not considering that Jesus was part of that uh, picture. He's not a potential candidate And it's like, well, if if Jesus is going to be betrayed, if his body's going to be broken, well, who's going to lead in his place? Who, who Who has seniority here to kind of lead our team? Greatest in this case, the word there, it suggests that it's based upon who's oldest. And Jesus is speaking about his sacrifice. They're arguing over seniority. It's kind of like preschool teacher and the principal are looking on silently, like, okay, like, who's really in charge? And their discussion, their argument, it showed that they didn't understand the nature of God's kingdom, that it's not like a kingdom where you have seniority or it's by, um, by might, right? They say that might makes right, but that's not how the kingdom of God operates. God has might, but he chose humility, submission to the Father's will. And Jesus says, God's kingdom does not operate like a human kingdom where rulers see their subjects as their domain to control and to profit from. The Gentiles, they exercise authority over their subjects. And a benefactor, it's one who gave benefits, like a king would give titles or lands or, or reduce taxes or finance public games to find favor with the people, He's doing that to benefit from them in some way. Jesus says, but not so among you. On the contrary, in contrast to that, the greatest among you is to act like the younger, not to be immature, but to choose in maturity to take that low place. Do you remember what Jesus did in the the, the Gospel of John account? It says that he took off his outer robe, he girded himself with a towel, and he washed the disciples' feet. So he's washing their feet while they're arguing about who's the greatest. Even the feet of Judas that would carry him out the door to betray him. So the greatness of Jesus, it was revealed in his humility, in his service. In the Jewish culture, those who were older, they were respected by the younger. And it's fitting, yet age and experience is no excuse for pride could you please turn to peter 1 peter chapter 5 starting in verse 5 where he exhorts younger people and it really doesn't matter if we are the younger or the elder this is to mark our conduct as followers of jesus according to his example so young people listen up but us older folks We must take this to heart as well. 1 Peter 5, starting in verse 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Instead of being annoyed or disappointed by poor service or what they weren't receiving that they thought they deserved or were entitled to, followers of Jesus are to be servants of all, to take that the place of the younger, to be one who is who's not just waiting for someone to do something for them, but to consider the needs of others and to act appropriately. That all ought to be clothed with humility, and I like that, clothed with humility, because all of you this morning, I'm just taking a quick gaze. It's likely you're not wearing right now the clothes that you were sleeping in last night. You woke up and decided, "Okay, what's an appropriate what's appropriate clothes for the occasion?" I wouldn't be upset if you wore your PJs to church, but I'm glad you're wearing clothes. That's a key, and you dressed yourself. You probably chose what you're gonna wear yourself. And being clothed with humility is a similar thing where there's an intentional choice that we're gonna put off selfishness. We're gonna put off um, feeling entitled, and we're gonna clothe ourselves with humility and what that looks like, what's appropriate, what is like we would consider modesty. And where you're going. Well, when we clothe ourselves with humility, we are mindful of Jesus and how he lived, what he did, how he submitted himself to the Father, even to death, the death of the cross. And we don't serve one another in a vain attempt to gain favor with God, but in the knowledge that God does give grace to the humble. Have you ever felt overlooked or unappreciated? that you are kind of doing a lot of work and no one seemed to notice. Other people seemed lazy or entitled. You serve, but you feel like others aren't really pulling their weight. They're not really having the same, I guess, attitude towards work that you are. And so what begins to happen? We become bitter. We become resentful. We feel like they're not doing their fair share. We're being leaned on. But the directive is for all of us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. These are the cares we need to be casting upon him because he cares for us. Jesus was certainly taken advantage of by people, but I don't believe he saw it as being taken advantage of because he humbled himself before God who allowed these things to develop, who, who guided him according to his will. Luke 22, verse 27. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on John's thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel." I like that Jesus doesn't end the squabble by saying, pull your hands in, boys. I am the greatest. He never said that. He never said, I am the greatest. There's no question. He's the rabbi. He's the teacher. He's the master. But he was the one who was serving. He was clothed with humility. He intentionally took the low place and he didn't draw attention to it. After Jesus washed their feet, he said this in John thirteen fourteen through 17. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Notice what Jesus does not say. He does not say, if I have washed your feet, You should wash my feet. He doesn't say that. That's what we say. You know, one hand washes another. I've done this for you. You do this for me. Jesus doesn't say that. He says, I've done this for you, so you do this to one another. And when we do it to the least of these, we have done it unto him. He receives it as us doing it unto him. So the Lord washed his disciples' feet, and he says, wash one another's feet. Minister to one another, minister my love and grace and compassion and thoughtfulness to each other. As we have received from Jesus, we ought to direct to one another. Freely we have received, so freely we give. Now Jesus, he's the greatest without question, without rival. Not one disciple is greater than our Savior. And he says, blessed are those who know this and do it. Those who walk in light of this truth. And Jesus did have a special blessing for those disciples who had continued in his trials. He had plenty of followers for a while who left him after a season. And he said, I'm giving you a place, an enduring kingdom, just as the Father has given me the kingdom. And they would have a place at his table. That suggests intimate fellowship and unity and closeness, communion with God and given authority. And when they thought of these thrones, like there's 12 thrones for judging the 12 tribes of Israel, and they're like, that's more like it, like right on. Um, But those positions, they couldn't be earned. They were only given by the grace of God. And their service could not make them worthy to sit in those thrones. It was knowledge of God's greatness despite their unworthiness, or in contrast to their unworthiness, that compelled them to be clothed with humility and walk by faith. So the question that was going through my head is, Is it the promise of future reward that motivates me to humility or all that I have already received through Christ Jesus? And it must be the latter if we're going to serve him truthfully and and worship him wholly in spirit and in truth. That we, we do not serve to gain but because Christ is our all in all. We have all because we have him. Luke 22, 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. The Lord singles out Peter here. It's, possible that he was very vocal in that preceding conversation about who should be the greatest, who was a senior member of their group, and Jesus revealed that Satan had requested to sift him as wheat, and the sifting process, that involves the separating of the grain from the husk, uh, the, the edible grain from the inedible parts, that rubbish Now, Satan could not move his tongue against Jesus, but he has a long-standing hobby and habit of accusing the brethren. And it's like he went to God and said, "Um, you know, this arrogant guy is nothing but trouble. How about you let me teach him a lesson about humility? Now, two things. Satan doesn't have the authority to do whatever he wants. He must get permission. He must ask God to do any idea that comes into his head. Secondly, Jesus prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail. He would be threshed. He would be sifted through his denial of Christ, but it wouldn't mean his destruction. And that's so wonderful about the way uh, a farmer will thresh the grain is he doesn't pulverize the grain. He will use enough pressure to separate the husk from the grain, but the grain will be preserved, not ground into powder, so it's lost forever forever. And God will allow threshing. He will allow trials and difficulties to separate sin from us, to separate uh, those characteristics of our flesh that makes us aware of them and to confess them and to repent. And it would result in humility and restoration. It's like through failure, Peter would be brought to a closer relationship with Jesus than he ever had before. Jesus also knew that Peter would return to him. Though he would deny him, he would return, and he was his chosen vessel to strengthen the brethren. Isn't that great? You're like, the one who denied me, he's not the one to strengthen the body, not one for edification, but no, he was the one. The one he singled out, the one who would betray is also the one who would strengthen, who would be used by God in the body of Christ. Now, Peter, he's a follower of Christ who is not always in submission to him, right? Like in this case, he says, you're going to betray me. He says, no, Lord. It's says, "But he said. So that's in contrast. He's, he's pushing back against what Jesus said. And this isn't the first time. When Jesus said, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to, be, uh, I'm going to die on the cross and then be raised the third day, Peter pulls him aside and says, not so, Lord, this will not happen to you. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You're mindful of the things of men, not of the things of God. When Jesus approached Peter to wash his feet that very night, Peter's like, you're not washing my feet. And he says, well, unless I wash wash you, you have no part in me. He's like, okay, well, then wash my feet, wash all of me. He really didn't understand what Jesus was doing. So he says, you're going to deny me, but he pledged his undying loyalty. I am ready to go to prison and to death for you, to go with you. And it's evident that Peter's view of himself was quite different from reality. Three times that night, he would deny even knowing Jesus before the rooster had time to crow twice. His failure, though, it wouldn't result in disqualification, but in, really, his redemption. Spiritual fruitfulness. It's like the humiliation of failure would provide good ground for the fruit of repentance. He chose to use him to strengthen the body. And I love that the power of God, he chooses the weak to, to, to show forth his strength, the foolish to confound the wise. And Peter would go to prison and to death for Jesus, but he wasn't ready yet. And Jesus prayed for him that his faith would not fail. And I think without the prayers of Jesus, who among us could stand to think that your name is on his lips when he speaks to the Father because he cares about you. Awesome. Luke 22, 35. And he said to them, when I sent you without money bag, knapsack and sandals, did you lack anything? So they said nothing. Then he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. So they said, Look, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. Previously, Jesus had sent his disciples throughout the land two by two to prepare for his coming. He was going on a tour, visiting different villages, and so his disciples went before him to prepare the way, and he forbade them from bringing anything from the trip, like don't bring a bag with a set of clothes, toiletries, uh, no backup sandals, just what you're wearing, trust me, and, and trust that the, the lodging that's supplied will be sufficient I, really, Jesus was going before them in a sense, but he said he was teaching them to trust the Lord, not to rely upon their own resources in serving him. And so, walking by faith, obedience to God, they said, We lack nothing. We had everything we needed. People were accommodating and welcoming, but a time was coming when Jesus would be apart from his disciples and they would not be so welcomed. They would face difficulties and conflicts. And he tells them, be prepared to face expenses, to suffer lack, and to face conflict. In one season, they were to rely completely upon the Lord for the daily necessities. But as he was leaving, he wanted them to use what they had to minister to others. That, um, so he wasn't saying, you know, before when I was here, you trust me, but now look to your own things. Now make sure you have a storehouse and you have stuff for yourself. No, it was, they were to rely upon God in both seasons, but things were going to be different with Jesus not physically among them. They were to trust and obey Jesus entirely, knowing all they had and all they possessed was a gift from God. And he quoted there from Isaiah 53, 12, concerning what must be accomplished that he would be numbered among the transgressors. And we know that when he was crucified, there were two thieves there that were crucified with him. They took what he said about swords literally. They said, oh, we already have two swords. Like, look, Lord, we have two swords. And there's a great latitude in interpreting what Jesus meant, but clearly they didn't get what he meant, uh, why he gave this command. It wasn't to attack their enemies or to turn their efforts toward improving their sword fighting abilities to, you know, crusade against the enemy or something or for their protection. The sword wasn't going to defend Jesus or prevent what was coming that night. Danger was coming. He would be betrayed. No amount of physical force would have stopped that because Jesus surrendered to it because it was the Father's will. Conflict was coming. They needed to be prepared. I think that's true for us too, that there is conflict of many kinds And it's not the sword that will deliver us, but the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God that will guide us into God's truth. Luke 22, 39, coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed saying, father, if it is your will, Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. Jesus and his disciples, they went out to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed. I think that's a great phrase because previously Luke had said that Jesus during the day he taught in the temple and during the night he went and camped out on the Mount of Olives. And he had this routine going during this Passover time, and if if you knew or I knew there was a murderous plot to kidnap or to take us by force to the authorities, we would probably alter our routine, right? I mean, if you know the bad guys are going to be there, you're not going to go where they think you're going to be. You're going to go in the opposite direction. You're going to go to Bethany. You're going to go to Bethlehem. You're going to go away from the danger. But Jesus did as he was accustomed to doing. He went exactly where he knew Judas would know he was because he trusted the Lord. It's like he orchestrated this. At any time, he could have walked away from the Lord's will, but he chose to embrace it, He chose to humble himself. And the place on the mount, it's called by name in Mark 14, 32. It says, then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he told them, pray that you may not enter temptation. It's interesting that Adam gave into temptation in the Garden of Eden. Jesus refused to enter into temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, unless we pray, we will enter temptation. That's kind of the, the concept that he's holding forth. So pray that you would not enter it. The name Gethsemane, it means olive press. Pressure placed upon olives to produce oil. It's nothing compared to the pressure placed upon Jesus to bend and yield to his own will rather than the will of the Father who led him to this place, who brought him to this hour, this hour of darkness, of betrayal, where his disciples would flee from him, when he would be alone, but not alone because the Father was with him. And he prayed, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In this act of praying, we see uh, the humanity and the deity of Jesus displayed. He's, he was not desirous of death for his flesh. There's many times in the Bible we read of people who desired death, though it wasn't for God's glory, it was for self-serving reasons. It was just to escape bad feelings or what had happened. Like King Saul, he was wounded on the mount Uh, in battle and to avoid humiliation at the hand of his enemies, he fell on his own sword. Abimelech, after a millstone cracked his skull, he told his arm better to quickly run him through so it would not be said that a woman had killed him because a woman had just chucked a piece of a millstone and crowned him. And that was what he was thinking, like, I don't want to suffer the shame, so kill me now. Moses, he said, Lord, if if this is how things are going to be, kill me so I don't have to see my own wretchedness. Like, I'd rather die than be alive. Elijah, after he was meeting with God, he said, it's better that I die than live. He says, I'm no better than my fathers. It was a depressing prospect that he had worked hard, but he realized that he didn't measure up to his standard of, of what, I guess, godliness or manliness was. Jonah, he asked God to take his life. He was humiliated after he sees the Ninevites uh, repent. And he, he would just, he, the sun is hitting him. He's hot and uncomfortable. He's like, man, take my life, Lord. I'm, I would rather be dead, right? So this is a common thing. Jesus is not in that vein. He's saying, Lord, if there's another way, I know all things are possible to you. I know that you can save in any way you desire. If it's possible then, Based on that knowledge, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, yours be done. So it wasn't like he was tired of life. He was embittered. He, you know, having these disciples was just a, a burden that he was happy to be rid of. No, he lived joyfully and gladly for the glory of God. It was his delight to live. He's the author of life. <laughs> it was good, but death, he was staring it in the face. He wasn't afraid, but we see that he knew God had sent him to be a savior for sinners. It's God's will that none should perish. The prayer of Jesus, it shows that God has given all humans a will distinct from God's will. There was no one more spirit-filled or in, I mean, he's God, right? So it's not like he was like God. No, he was God. Yet as a human being, he had his own will, which he had to surrender, choose to surrender. Like you choose to be clothed with humility. He had to choose to yield and submit to the Father's will. He was resigned to do his will gladly. He had passed a cup to his disciples like, hey, but this, this crucifixion, this sacrifice was not a cup he could pass to them. This is one for him. It was for him to drink. He would face judgment, the consequences of sin, and become sin for us. It says that in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus is not carefree or flippantly cracking jokes as this drew near, but he, he surrendered to the Father's will. He was troubled, but he was determined. He realized the salvation God would bring. And we make decisions, you know, like, oh, I have a peace about it. Like, I feel okay about this. You guys ever felt that? Like you have prayed, you feel comforted and rested that, that, yes, this is the right decision. It's not a bad thing, but Jesus didn't make his decision based upon how he felt at the time. I mean, he was under a lot of stress, a lot of pressure to, to go his own way and to choose his will. The will of a body that's like, I don't want to die. I want to live for the glory of God. But he knew God's will, and he chose to surrender to it, to honor him by walking in obedience. And an angel was sent to strengthen him. Verse 44, "'And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, "'Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation.'" Luke records that after praying, an angel was sent to strengthen him. Interestingly, it seems Jesus was strengthened to agonize and pray even more than before. Now, when our bodies are faint and we're weary, and we know that we have a big task ahead, we tend to reserve our strength, don't we? Like, okay, big day tomorrow, got to get to bed early right? Okay, I feel pretty tired, but I know I've got that, that presentation, so I need to be, you know, I need to take a bit of a, a sleep, get my mind right, get everything prepared. Not Jesus right here. So the angel strengthens him to pray more, to pray agonizingly. I mean, his, his body, his soul, his mind, they are all exercised in praying. And, and I don't know that I've, well, I can say I've never prayed to the point where I'm I am literally, my, there's blood tinged in my sweat because the capillaries are rupturing because I'm just so focused on seeking the Lord. In prayer, Jesus aligned his will and surrenders to the Father. All temptation to seek his own will, it was subdued, it was overcome, it was demolished. I'm reminded of this exhortation in Hebrews 12, three and four to Christians. It says, for consider him, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. Jesus' sweat drops of blood when he surrendered to the Father's will in Gethsemane. His blood was shed on Calvary because he resisted all desire to save himself when the Father ordained him to suffer. He realized that. He had utter faith in the Father and what's awesome is for all the suffering God it allows, there is consolation. there is comfort, and then a redemptive purpose, as we see in the life of Christ. And considering all that Jesus suffered and all He endured, it strengthens and it encourages us to pray, to seek Him. Again, in contrast to Jesus, who's been praying? He's not entering into temptation. The disciples are all sleeping. It says they were sleeping from sorrow. I mean, the the revelation, Jesus is going to be betrayed, his body would be broken, his blood would be shed, it left them pretty bummed out. I'm sure it was a very quiet gathering as they were pretty much lost in their own thoughts of what was happening or what was going to transpire. And these were not comforting thoughts. And even a stone's throw away from Jesus was sufficient for them to be lost in their own sorrow in silence, and they fell asleep. And Jesus says, why do you sleep? Rise and pray lest you enter temptation. I'm sure when they woke up, they didn't say, oh, oh yeah, I, I was really tired, or I was really sorrowful. Like, it's a rhetorical question. Because two times in this passage, he said, you know, like, pray lest you enter into temptation. So praying, uh, in their own strength, they could not avoid being sorrowful or sleepy, but he, in power with the Holy Spirit, he was enabled to overcome his flesh and to, be, to put his flesh into subjection to the Father's will, to pray more earnestly and agonized in prayer. Sleeping doesn't lessen our sorrow. Wouldn't it be nice if it did? Like, just sleep on that and all your problems just go away. <laughs> no, they're still there in the morning <laughs> But praise the Lord that he is faithful. He hears our prayers. He answers. And when we don't have strength, he will supply that strength by his grace. Because he says, stand in Ephesians 6, having done all to stand. And he doesn't ever say, love one another, unless he empowers us to love. And he doesn't say stand, unless he gives us the strength to stand. So it's about relying upon him, not my own strength, which leaves me exhausted and tired and wanting to die, right? I mean, that's, when things get bad, we well, say, wouldn't it be easier if it was just over? But Jesus was considering new life, salvation, the Father's plans, not his own. Luke 22, 47. And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. He touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and elders who had come to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness." As Jesus is speaking, suddenly a multitude draws near to them. You wouldn't expect to see a multitude in the the middle of the night. It's led by Judas, one of the twelve, and he drew near to Jesus to kiss him with a customary greeting. It was arranged by Judas that he would identify who Jesus was by whom he kissed. And Jesus revealed that he knew what was happening. He was aware of this plot. So he knew where Judas was going to go and he knew what signal Judas was sending. None of this escaped him. He was very aware of it and he brought it out in the open. Like, hey, are you betraying me with a kiss? One of them was a kiss of hypocrisy. The other was a kiss of love, undying love and grace. Even though he knew what he was up up to. He knew what he was plotting and scheming. The disciples, they were roused from sleep, seeing hands laid on Jesus. They had those two swords and they said, hey, should we strike with the sword? Apparently, they did not wait for an answer because one of them lopped off the ear of a, one of the people there, as we read in John eighteen ten. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So it's a known person, servant of the high priest, who did it, where it happened. And Jesus responded to the bloodshed. He miraculously reattaches the ear and heals it. It's amazing to me that the people needed confirmation of Jesus' identity because it was a bit dark, it was hard to see. And yet Jesus is healing people's ears. That requires microsurgery by a few select specialists. And uh, he did it like in the dark in a moment. And then this high priest, the high priest was neck deep in this plot to kill Jesus. And now he has a servant who has an ear cut off that was miraculously reattached, who would be a testimony to him and his household for the rest of his life of what Jesus had done. His compassion, his power. It was right before him every day where he's like, man, that ear was off. There was a lot of blood. But look at it. I don't even see, I can't even see what happened. Isn't God awesome? That God could allow such a thing. I mean, it'd be a horrible thing to experience. But the miracle, the restoration. Jesus, he spoke to the chief priests and elders about their shady scheme. He's like, you guys had opportunity any every day to arrest me in public, but you do it at night with clubs and swords. And But this is your hour and the power of darkness. He knew that Satan was behind this plot. He knew that they had been duped and blinded, how they were wicked and envious and how this would be used to accomplish God's plan to bring salvation to all. In the darkness, the light of the world shone bright. And it seems his antagonists could not see it. They were blind to it. They refused to see it. But the evidence was there, even in the garden, even in those last moments. And even when he was on the cross, time after time, he proved who he is, the Son of God. So the humility, man, let's take this to heart. Please turn to Philippians 2, starting in verse 1, just as a final exhortation. Philippians 2, starting in verse 1. It's Paul's words to believers. He says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. He's not saying there might be consolation. He's saying since there is consolation consolation in Christ since there is comfort of love there is fellowship of the spirit there is affection and mercy be united in these things be clothed with humility have the mind of Christ pride asks what about me when will i get my due when will things be when will i get fair treatment it's all focused upon what i'm receiving or ought to receive humility it looks beyond self and it considers what impacts others Jesus knew he would be betrayed. He communicated this to his disciples. When Malchus' ear was cut off, he didn't say, serves you right, your ear was severed, or that's nothing compared to what I'm facing, and minimized his pain. No, he healed him. He restored him. He said, just permit this, and he healed him. Instead of being confrontational, Jesus, he consoled, he comforted, he humbled himself to show affection his perspective of surrendering to the Father's will, to being clothed with humility. He surrendered his rights before the Heavenly Father and also uh, the wicked men because he knew what God's will was for his life. God manifested in flesh with eternal glory, his Godhead concealed. He chose to embrace the role as a slave. The giver of life, he was obedient to lay down his life. Like he's giving up what's his. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He chose to lay that aside so that we could have life. Greatness, it's not measured by seniority, but humility. And Jesus put his needs before others and surrender to the Father's will. And we, we admire Jesus for his love and compassion and his power. Do you admire his humility? And do you desire to say, not my will but yours be done and, and mean it and live it. Jesus has given us an example to follow, to be clothed with humility, to serve faithfully, to pray earnestly. Being clothed with humility is really a tire that's appropriate for all occasions and may we learn to live that for the glory of God and surrender to the will Of our Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us such an example and you have given us great affection and love and comfort and mercy. And everything we have is a gift from you, this very life that we treasure and sometimes we'd be happy to to throw away. God forbid. And Lord, I pray that we would draw near to you, that we would pray lest we enter temptation. And when you've strengthened us, we would pray even more earnestly to seek you and to surrender our lives before you, that we would be presented as a living sacrifice of which you are worthy. It's our reasonable service, Lord, for all that you've done for us. Thank you for Jesus and how he he came to this earth. He put on human flesh. He clothed himself with humility. He became the servant of all, giving us an example to follow and went to the cross to supply eternal life to all who trust in him. Lord, how we... We worship you and we praise you for the wondrous things you have wrought and for the plans that you have to prosper, to give us a hope and a future uh, on earth and in heaven, according to your will, that we have a spot at your table at the marriage supper of the Lamb where we will celebrate our Savior. And in this season, Lord, of restrictions, and uh, may we celebrate Jesus and who you are and how great he is to us all. Help us to be clothed with humility, Lord, to make that choice and to keep making that choice so we might honor and glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen.